Hi, you're listening to Koldo D Messianic Congregation's weekly podcast. Join us in person for our weekly Shabbat services every Saturday at 11 a.m. We meet at 3534 West End Avenue in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website at koldod.org or follow us on Facebook and watch us live at facebook.com forward slash Nashville. And now, here's Rabbi Ken's latest message. my husband, Sean Buckhalter, and you are in for a real treat. <laughs> he is one of our elders at Cold D, and um, I got to say, we used to work for Jews for Jesus, and he was trained by just one of the best expositors of biblical text ever, and he's really good at preaching Torah. So you are in for a treat this morning. Sean, I will let you take over. Alvino Malkinu, our Father and our King, we thank you for the opportunity to come and worship. As I was driving in, my two-and-a-half-year-old asked us, why are we going to congregation? And um, it's because you give us an opportunity and a calling to worship you. Thank you for that privilege, and I pray, Father God, that you would fill me with your spirit in such a way Um, that conviction, challenge, encouragement would come forth from your word. Lord, reveal yourself through my words and the words of your text. In the name of our Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, amen. My message is on embracing our calling, and it comes from the Torah portion this week, which begins in Leviticus chapter 21. And goes all the way through to the end of chapter 24. Now, I don't like to speak without giving some context or where we are in the Torah, as well as specifically where we are in the book that we are reading, which is Leviticus. And so, for those of you who are not aware, Leviticus is really just a continuation of Exodus. Um, The very end of Exodus, chapter 40, verse 17 concludes with the fact that these events took place on the first day of the first month of the second year. And by the second year, Moses is speaking about the second year in which they came out of Egypt. And then Levitic Numbers, two books later, starts with telling us that he is recording, these events are being recorded on the first day of the second month of the second year. And so most scholars have concluded that the book of Leviticus is in that interluding month between Exodus and Numbers. And so that's exactly where we are. And the theme of Leviticus is pretty obvious. Any of you who have read it, it's how Israel was to fulfill its covenant responsibility to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's throughout the entire uh, 
almost every Torah portion there is, you'll see that, where Moses repeats over and over and over again, you know, that we are called to be a holy nation. That's why he brought us out of Egypt. And so that's the theme of Leviticus. And the structure of the book is pretty simple. It's broken down into two main sections. The first section deals with the offering and sacrifices. That is chapters 1 through 17. And it's how the sacrifices were to be used to set apart the people and the priest. But it is not meant to be an exhaustive explanation of the entire sacrificial system. Meaning that you could not read Leviticus and do everything that was taking place during the ancient times when the temple stood. And the second section is chapters 18 through the end of the book, is really a description and instruction on how Israel was supposed to be a holy nation. And that's exactly where we are now. And the form of Leviticus, most of it is giving of the law. I have to be honest with you. It's excruciatingly boring at times. Um, if we're honest with ourselves, and at times can be redundant and confusing confusing, but interspersed throughout the giving of these specific laws are these narratives. There are these stories, and these are not meant to be random stories, but these narratives, and there's one in our Torah portion today, are meant to be illustrations of the application of those laws in which Moses just sent down. My last introduction when it comes to the book of Leviticus is I don't want us to forget the context in which it is written into. The focus was first and foremost on the first generation to leave Exodus. That is the context in which Moses wrote, that, wrote down this book. It was to instruct that first generation and warn them how not to be like the Canaanites and future generations, how not to be like the Babylonians. It was to help them to be distinct. However, the Torah, and specifically all the context, was also meant to point to something greater. It was meant to point to a messianic all the books of the Torah have that spread throughout every single portion. And how do we know that? Well, because you'll consistently find throughout the entire Torah where he informs us of how future generations are just going to fail. And how does the very end of Deuteronomy, you know, what does it state? It states that there will come a time when someone even greater than Moses will appear. In other words, it points, the entire Torah is ultimately pointing to some future hope. It's kind of like Guy Ritchie films. For those of you who like Guy Ritchie, um, his films move brilliantly fast. I don't fully endorse it. There are some sketchy parts of Guy Ritchie films, but they move ri ridiculously fast. And what will happen is, is there will be... This one scene in the movie, actually, in fact, the most recent Guy Ritchie film, The Gentleman, there's this one scene where the whole purpose of that scene, I can't give away what it was, is about because some of you will be really mad uh, if that's your next Netflix video, but there's this one scene in which the whole purpose was to rescue a person who is in this apartment. At the very last second, someone dies. I mean, it's just a random character 
out of nowhere, and if you know Guy Ritchie, and if, you, if anyone's a good director or a good storyteller, you know that at the very end of the movie, that person who died plays a crucial role in the entire climax of that film. And that's kind of the way in which Moses, he sprinkles in these clues. He doesn't reveal everything about this messianic hope, but just enough so when this event appears, everyone will point to, oh, that's what that was stating. Or it could make further sense. So now, sorry guys, that's why I wanted to actually have it on my computer. (laughs) Deal with what you got. So the Torah portion, chapters 21 through 24. I'm just going to read two sections for us. It starts out in 21. It says, Then Adonai says to Moses, Speak to the Kohanim, that is the priest, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, A Kohen is not to allow himself to become unclean for the dead among his people, except for his relatives that are nearest to him. His mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him, who has had no husband. For he may allow himself to become unclean, but he is not to defile himself, a husband among his people, and so profane himself. So the first section of the Torah portion is really about the condition of the priest within the community. Chapters 21 through 22 have four groupings of lists. Ironically, all those groupings of the list of the laws are all put in categories of seven laws. You might ask, how in the world do we know that? Like, remember, at this point in history, the way in which you wrote, you know, you did not use things like indentations. You did not use numbers like one, two, three, four. But if you look throughout the book, if you look at verse 1, it says, Then Adonai said to Moses. You move down to verse 16. It states again, Adonai spoke to Moses saying. In other words, that's the way in which in ancient times, good writers would actually distinct between sections. They would just repeat themselves. Today's day, an editor would just cross it out and say, you got a problem. But back then, that was the only way to be able to highlight different sections. And so, again, if you don't take the time right now, but if you read throughout, you'll see that. Um, and they groups the sections. The first one groups are, it all has to do with, again, the, how the priests are supposed to live within the community. And it talks about things like how they are not to be, how not to profane themselves, how a, pers- a pre- uh, persons are not authorized to eat various different sacrificial offerings, time periods of the offerings. And then the second section of our Torah portion is Leviticus chapter 23. Most of you are familiar with this section. It talks about the seven special seasons or the Moedim of the people of God. And the last section, or the last two sections, one is about the continual offerings. It's about the burning of oil and the lampstand, how it's supposed to be continuous. And the second thing that's supposed to be continuous is the preparation of the 12 loaves of bread on the golden table. And lastly, the last section of this part, both as the rabbis have broken it down by Torah portion, as well as the author himself, because you'll see how the next section starts. It makes it very clear that this is kind of like a new 
portion of or a new chapter in this book. It has to do is a narrative, and it's a very unique narrative. It's a narrative about a blasphemer um, and the distinction between him being stoned, this blasphemer, by the congregation, and then the penalty for murder. So, that was a lot. This is where one of my mentors used to say, so what? What in the world does this have to do with us? I mean, I don't know about you, um, but I do not expect myself at any time to make any sacrifices. I certainly um, am not going to be stoning anyone for blasphemy. At least I hope not in the near future or any time. And so what I want to talk about here, the so what, as I pondered and meditated on this Torah portion, was about embracing our calling. And it was about embracing first the magnitude of our calling, the uniqueness of our calling, and the communal nature of our calling. By magnitude of our calling, I mean the fact that so often we read about the conditions of which the high priest and the priesthood had to live, and we just glance over them. We think that these are some type of superhuman people that somehow just fully embodied and accepted and, shall we say, enjoyed every one of the uniqueness or, you know, I hate to say it, the burden of their calling. You know, in recent years, there's been a lot of literature about high achievers, you know, and just literature on achievement in general. And a lot of it talks about this myth where most of us, we believe that those who do great things are just pure naturals. That somehow, some way, you know, Elon Musk's, the LeBron James of the world, that somehow they're just purely natural. Like they woke up and all of a sudden they were able to jump six feet. But over and over again, what this literature talks about is the fact that that is often not the case. Yes, I am never going to be LeBron James. I hate to tell you. I'm five foot six and I could jump about six inches on a good day. But what is common about the majority of these high achievers is the fact that they embrace their giftings and embrace the sacrifice and the hard work that they're called to to become who they ultimately feel like they should be. And one of my favorite stories is about the great Mets pitcher. I'm a diehard baseball fan. I am a Yankee fan. However, I do appreciate the Mets. Um, my father, rest in peace, was a Met fan, so I have to respect that. Um, even though who knows when the next time they'll win the World Series is. Sorry, Met fans. But Tom Seaver considered the greatest Mets pitcher of all time. He was a right-hander. And in the off-season, he would oftentimes like to go to the cabin with his wife and his children. And he was notorious for taking care of his right arm. He would do nothing with it. In fact, one of the stories is that he would not even pick up a log with his right hand out of fear that somehow if he threw it into the fire that there would, something would happen to his arm or flame would come back. He was just so meticulous about guarding that. And I hate to say it, but there is a burden to the calling of God. There was a burden to the calling of the high priest. I mean, if you read through that first section of the Torah portion, 
chapter 21, you'll see that these, these priests, they could not marry who they wanted to. There were certain th conditions in which they could marry or not marry someone. Their social life was inconvenienced. One of them is the fact that if a priest's daughter happened to marry a good Jewish boy but was not part of the priesthood, they had to prepare two meals for the family. I mean, they had to prepare one because the priesthood, the priest and his family, his wife and his children still living at home unmarried, can participate in this, eating the sacrificial offerings. But if his daughter, you know, again, married a good Jewish boy, but who happened to not be a priest, they could not partake of that. So I read this and I think as a father, that's a lot of money. I mean, think of the cost of inflation, two meals. You know, yes, the burden to cook a second meal, but of course I'd be thinking about the financial implications. But also, there was an inconvenience or a burden when it came to just the participation in communal life. One of the qualifications is a, a priest could not disqualify himself by going to a dead body. Only if it was his mother or his wife, but a close friend or anyone near to them, an aunt or an uncle, a beloved family member, they could not participate in the traditional grieving process. And oftentimes, I hate to say it, I just glance over this. And the truth of the matter is that principle still stays the same for us today, that there is a magnitude to our calling that at times can feel overwhelming, inconvenient, and also at times intrusive. But this is what God calls us to. And I hate to say it, if you're like me, oftentimes one of the reasons why I am not feeling fulfilled or satisfied in my walk with the Lord is because I'm running away from that high calling. I don't want to embrace that inconvenience. I don't want to look differently than some of my other successful friends. It's different for all of us. But all of us are called to a significant calling. And at times, that can feel inconvenient. Second thing that, again, stood out for me was the uniqueness of God's calling. You might notice that even in this very Torah portion, that there are aspects that are specific for the community of Israel as a whole. There are other aspects that are not for the community, but only for the Levites. And then there are even different unique callings for the high priest themselves. All part of the community of God, but all unique in how God is calling them to live out their lives. When I first became a believer, I had a close-knit crew. Um, I was in just my second year of college, and... When I went back home, I was going to school in uh, UNC Charlotte, North Carolina. Funny thing about that is after I graduated, I vowed never to live below the Mason-Dixon again. And here I am, 11 years. That might have been one of the ways in which I did not accept the magnitude of God's calling of my life. I wanted to run away from the South, and so I did. But after a when I first became a believer, I went, you know, back home. I had my high school crew that I hung out with. And, you know, let's just say, I'll be PG-13, we did shady things in our lives. 
many of them. And when I first came back, I felt like I needed to distance myself from them for a, for a season. And I wasn't sure how long it would last. And then all of a sudden, I felt the freedom to go back and be with my friends. And I was able to have the strength to be with them, befriend them, and not participate in what they were doing. And a few months later, one of the members of the crew, by the name of Marcio, also became a believer. And he, like me, had a very radical transformation. However, he felt like he could not re-engage with our old friends because it was too difficult for him. And so to this day, he's had little association with that crew. And even though I still talk with them, meet with them, hang out with them regularly, but he felt like that was how he needed to live out his life. But oftentimes, these distinctions about or the uniqueness of our calling that God gives to us, remember, the, the priesthood, you didn't decide if you were going to become a priest. This was given to you by the Lord himself. You were born into that family. I, too, believe that the distinctions and uniqueness of our calling is not something that we choose but is given to us by God. And oftentimes, these distinctions can bring great joy in our lives because it makes us who we are, but it also can rob us of peace and joy if we choose not to embrace them. It can bring us despair, depression, anger. I don't know about any of you, but I felt all these as I look at the examples of others and think about who I want to be. Some of us, I haven't been called to, but some of us have been called to God, you know, to be single. Other of us have been called by God to be successful and wealthy, to be able to give it away. Other of us have not. Some of us have been called to lay down our talents and our ambitions to be able to serve God in a unique way. Some of us have been called to serve an elderly parent or a handicapped child. Those are all just, just examples of the uniqueness of our individual callings. And we are called, just like the distinctions between the call, callings of the community of Israel, the Levites, and the priests, we too are called in that way. And honestly, the only way that I know to do that is how Moses chooses to conclude that section in the Torah in verse 22, chapter 22, verse 31, where he says, this is after he gives that long list of distinctions of how the priesthood is supposed to live their lives. He says, so you are to keep my mitzvot or my law and do them. I am Adonai. You must not profane my holy name for I will be made holy among you. In the house of Israel, I am Adonai who makes you holy, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Adonai. The only way in which we can embrace the uniqueness of our calling, particularly the challenging ones, is if we remember that, again, it was God who called us. I am the Lord your God who made you, he's telling Israel, holy. In other words, I made you distinct. This is the calling I have given you. You have not chosen it but it's given to, me from, given to you from me. And also remembering that he called us out of Egypt. 
and he's not going to waste our lives. He stretched out his arm. He grabbed us out of Egypt, out of sin and slavery, and brought us to himself. The callings that he has given us that might not feel very comfortable or desirable or feel like we're wasting ourselves, he's not, he chose not, he's not going to redeem your life or my life to simply to waste it. That's not who our God is. The last one is the communal nature of our calling. And I'm actually going to read the very last section of this Torah portion, chapter 24, beginning in verse 10. It says, Now, the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the house of Israel. And a fight broke out between the Israelite woman's son and an Israelite man. The Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was, I am not even going to try that. The daughter of Debris, I think I got that right, of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody until the will of Adonai could be declared to them. Then Adonai spoke to Moses saying, bring the one who cursed out of the camp and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and have the entire congregation stone him. Then you will speak to the house of Israel saying, whoever curses his God will bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of Adonai must surely be put to death. The outsider as well as the native-born, when he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death. Whoever mortally strikes down any man, surely be put to death. Whoever mortally strikes down an animal is to make restitution life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, the same is to be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Just as he has injured someone, so it should be done to him. Whoever kills an animal is to make restitution. But the one who kills a man is to be put to death. You are to have one standard of justice for an outsider as well as a native born. I am Adonai, your God. And again, concluding this section of the Torah, so Moses spoke to the house of Israel, and they led the one who had cursed out of the camp, then stoned him with rocks. The house of Israel did as Adonai commanded Moses. Again, at first glance, this can seem very random. I mean, why all of a sudden does Moses put in this narrative story in the midst of just listing out laws? I mean, this is how he concludes this section right after he gave Leviticus 23, the Moedim. And he highlights the difference between capital punishment and murder. That is the consistent highlight here, where capital punishment is something in which the congregation or the community participates in, where murder is forbidden because it is the retribution of an individual. And notice that Moses tells us that the Lord has given this heavy responsibility of purifying the camp 
purifying the community, not to the religious professional. It's not Moses' job or Aaron's job for generations to come. It is the community's job. They led him out the camp, and the community stoned him. All those who heard this man's blaspheme, uh, blasphemy is to participate. And again, the context is about preserving purity. And there's a great responsibility of the community to participate in the setting apart, not just the priesthood as individuals, not just the, not just the individual, but the community has a responsibility to do that. And we can all point to things in our society when this has been done well, but recently there's been many times that have been exposed of when this is done poorly, where the community has not taken responsibility that they were given. There's a recent ESPN film. Yes, I like sports. Yes, I watch ESPN. Sorry. Um, funny story, when I first met my wife, um, she, I thought she had no interest in me, um, which, of course, led me like her even more when we first met. But as she likes to say, all I did the whole night was talk about sports, and she couldn't relate at all. So um, I apologize. But there's a recent ESPN film about Joe Paterno's legacy, which is the story about not just Joe Paterno, the great Penn State coach, but the entire community of Penn State and how they failed in their obligation to prevent one man who which had many times been exposed in different ways of the uh, exploitation of young men. And it talks about how this great man who did so many profound things for the community had this one failure and how Others around them did the exact same. There is a certain responsibility that comes when you are called by God, redeemed by God, as part of a community. There are seasons, and I've had to take seasons, where I've had to not be as engaged in various different community life, but those are meant to be seasons. If you are called by God, you are called to be part of a community, and you are called to protect that community and called to participate um, in the ways in which God wants to reveal his glory and help others embrace their calling as well. Except, so I've talked about three parts for me that this Torah portion convicted me on about embracing my calling. Um, first, you know, embracing the magnitude of our calling, the uniqueness of our calling, as well as the communal nature of our calling. However, if we're honest with ourselves, and I'll be the first one to raise our, my hand, I'm miserable at this, constantly. My wife will greatly attest that I usually vacillate between one of two areas. I usually either fail to embrace the magnitude of my calling. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't like what I feel like this is going to lead to, how it's going to make me look. I could just keep going on and on. Or I become part of a great club in which, call, which I call the religious judgmental pricks. Have anyone else been part of it? Where you identify certain aspects that are good about the calling of God, and yet you somehow think that you are superior, you're accomplishing it, 
and you don't quite comprehend why other people are not embracing it, and instead of being graceful and understanding and calling people up, you speak down to people. Or you don't do it consciously, at least I typically don't, but it's definitely there. And I would say that pretty much my entire life is about vacillating between those two things. Some of you might live in one of those camps. Some of you might just consistently run away from the great calling that God has placed on your life. And I hate to say it, some of you might tend to stay in a little bit of the judgmental camp. Again, I'm, I've been president of both, so I'm speaking to myself. However, there's truly only one hope when it comes to embracing our calling. And that hope is found in that narrative I just read. Although the context is specifically dealing with helping Israel know how as a community to weed out those who are choosing to not embrace the calling of God by blaspheming, to, although that narrative was about preserving the purity and holiness of the community of God, as I mentioned before, the Torah is also pointing to the great, a greater hope. And that greater hope is the fact that we are all like that Egyptian, half-Egyptian man in which our failure to embrace our calling, whether we are a judgmental prick or whether we are just running away like, um, you name it, um, we have, that is blaspheming the name of our God. We are choosing to put our hand up to God and say, no. Either I'm doing it by my own strength and I'm good, or I don't want to follow you. I don't want to embrace your calling in my life. I don't want you to be my Lord. And notice how Moses is very specific in which they take this gentleman outside the camp. And there, the community stones them, or stones him. That is the penalty in which we all deserve. But we know that our Messiah, the one who Moses pointed to, he took our blasphemy. He was taken outside of the camp. He was stoned by the community. And therefore, that is our hope. Our hope is that on he took our penalty, and we can embrace our calling. We could embrace the magnitude of it, the uniqueness of it, the communal nature of it. And when we fail, he's already taking that burden for us. So we are free to be honest. We are free not to have to carry that burden, to raise our hands and say, yes, I failed. Yes, I have run away. Yes, I have failed in that I think I'm the one who's fulfilling this calling. When the truth of the matter is, is we are all just like that Egyptian man. So, Father, I thank you for the high calling that you have given your people and that we get to participate in, whether Jewish or Gentile, through the one who bore our blasphemy, to the one who was taken outside the camp and stoned, or in this case, raised on a tree, that we can know that we are 
ultimately not responsible for our sins. You took it upon yourself. And Father, we are free to embrace that calling in both our successes and our failures. Thank you for that. In the name of our Messiah, Jesus, amen. That was like a lot of good information. It was a lot of good hey stuff, right? Here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. I, as a child of Holocaust survivors, grand, great-grandchild, and hearing the horrors from their mouths, I could never get a tattoo. Like a lot of, you see a lot of Christians, but um, I never take this bracelet off. It is my Hineni bracelet. I don't know if you guys have your version of a Hineni bracelet that always reminds you. That's right, no. Everywhere I walk, if I go in the bank, if I go to school, if I go to the gym, if I go, wherever I go, I'm always saying to the Lord, Hineni, you called me, here I am. I'll go, I will say, I will do, or I will stop, and I will wait. It's a, it can be a heavy calling. Um, I hope every single one of you that walks alongside Cold OD or walks within Cold OD as a member will come to this meeting next week at 1 o'clock about this summer outreach because we need every single one of you. If you have been called here to Cold OD, I, I hope that you will really ask the Lord how he wants you to participate with us in reaching our community here in Nashville, reaching our Jewish community, and reaching the nations. We were called to be a light to the nations, not just our own people. And if you are watching right now, Lord, I just pray that anyone who is here or is watching online right now, if you are a believer and you are feeling that kind of anxious, fluttery feeling that, you know, sometimes that's how the Lord works with the Holy Spirit, that you are being called to something. I hope you will reach out to us and we can pray for you and help you work through that. The prayer team is going to be here at the front afterwards. And if you are someone who has been struggling with the, I'm going to say the mishigas, the craziness of the world these last few years particularly, and you don't know Yeshua, and you are just yearning for peace to, to get outside of the craziness and not be stuck in the middle and the anxiousness and all the things that go with it, the fear, Yeshua is the answer to all of it. Cold OD is not just here for Jewish people that believe in Jesus. We are here for anyone of any tribe, tongue, background. If you have never given your life to Yeshua, please ask the Lord in your heart or even out loud at home right now. Lord, I want what you're offering. I believe you are who you say you are. Come into my life and transform me and call me just the way Sean just talked about. And if you prayed that prayer, please, please, please reach out to us at Cold OD. We want to bless you. Wow, Lord, I just want you, I just want to give you a minute here. If you prayed that prayer, please just say amen in your heart. Yevarechadonai ve Yishmerecha 
countenance upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord bestows favor upon you and gives you his peace. Amen. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen.